standing there, staring at the long shelves crammed with books, I felt myself relax and was suddenly at peace. Helene Hamp, Q's Legacy, a delightful account of a lifelong love affair with books. back to Bookish, a literary podcast. I'm Paul, and today we'll be talking about books about books, nonfiction edition. Why do I say nonfiction edition? Because in the earlier podcast, we spent a fair amount of time talking about the Biblio mystery, which is a mystery where a book or an author or a publisher or something literary plays a key role in the plot. You should go back and listen to it. Today, however, we're focusing solely on nonfiction. It may surprise some of you, but there are a huge number of books about books out there in the marketplace. Far more than I could ever discuss in one podcast. In fact, two basically constitute a series. One by Nicholas Basbanes, which covers the history of the book, the history of paper, the history of libraries in multiple volumes, and deserves a show of its own. The other uh, is a book that began with Used and Rare, Travels in the Book World, by Lawrence and Nancy Goldstone. They wrote several other volumes, and their work also deserves a podcast of its own. For today's episode, I've narrowed it down to what I consider four of the very best books about books that you can read. If you don't read any others, you should definitely try these. And before we get started, just as a side note, this week is National Library Week here in the United States, and there's no better way to support your library than to get out there and borrow all four of these books from your local library. And while you're there, let your librarians know how much you appreciate the amazing work that they do every single day. On with the show. For true book lovers, there's just something about books about books. And in the yellow lighted bookshop, San Francisco author Lewis Busby does something few writers would be able to. He makes the history of the book and the history of the bookstore something you just can't put down. And during his career, Busby's written both fiction and nonfiction, and he has the ability to paint a vivid picture with very few words. When he describes a favorite bookshop on a dark, rainy Tuesday in November, you can feel the biting wind and see the inviting warmth of the store beckoning. The book is billed as both a memoir and a history. And perhaps that's what makes it work. Right at the moment the historical aspect could start to become tedious, Busby switches gears to the memoir side, giving readers a glimpse into the world of the bookseller that few knew existed. And he's no newcomer to the book world. Having started as a clerk at a San Jose bookstore during his freshman year of college, and continuing in either bookselling or as a publisher sales rep for the next 30 years. 
The history of the bookstore is obviously intertwined with the history of books and bookmaking, and the yellow-lighted bookshop takes the reader on a fascinating journey from the first papyrus scrolls in the Great Library of Alexandria through the e-book and mega-chains like Barnes & Noble and Borders. Rest in peace. Mixed throughout this 3,000-year journey are Busby's own journeys, his love of books, and some laugh-out-loud moments. By the time you finish the book, you'll definitely want to sneak a peek in the back room of your local bookstore, hoping to see some of the things that he has seen. Busby makes a convincing case for how much we need bookstores, and he laments the decline of reading in America. I was a little surprised, though, that a man who spent the better part of his life working in independent bookstores seems to bear no grudge against the major chain retailers or internet sites like Amazon. He does, however, have a few caustic words for the large discount and warehouse stores. What is evident throughout the yellow-lighted bookshop is that Busby is a man who has a reverence for books. Book lust is the term he uses most often. And his book lust is contagious. When you finish this slim 216-page volume, you may find yourself more likely to slow down and rediscover the joy of wandering through rows and rows of shelves on a rainy afternoon, stumbling upon the perfect book that you'd never even heard of before. The second book about books you want to check out is called Time Was Soft There, A Paris Sojourn at Shakespeare and Company by Jeremy Mercer. The title comes from a line in the book where Mercer writes, Hard time goes slowly and painfully and leaves a man bitter. Time at Shakespeare and Company was as soft as anything I'd ever felt. The book chronicles the brief but eventful nine-month period that Mercer, a Canadian crime reporter, spent living at Shakespeare and Company. And in that sense, it's a memoir. Mercer is a talented storyteller, and there are many points where the book seemed more like a novel than nonfiction. For me, the only flaw in his delivery is a penchant for melodrama, particularly at the beginning concerning the death threat that caused him to flee Canada for Paris in 1999. But the relationships, both good and bad, that he builds with the other staff and residents of the bookstore more than make up for this. More than a memoir, though, Time Was Soft There is also both a history and a current view of the bookstore itself. As I said in my earlier podcast, the original Shakespeare and Company was founded by Sylvia Beach in 1919 and was the home of the lost generation of American writers, such as Hemingway and Fitzgerald, until it was closed by the Nazis in 1941 during the occupation of France. In 1951, George Whitman opened an English-language bookstore in Paris, and after supposedly seeking Beach's permission, he later renamed his store Shakespeare and Company as well. In reality, it's George Whitman's life story that truly drives Time Was Soft there. In many ways, it's more about Whitman than Mercer. George Whitman, who lived at the store until his death in 2011 at the age of 98, though management of daily operations had passed to his daughter Sylvia just after the time the book was written, was an unabashed socialist, telling Mercer early on that, quote, I run a socialist utopia that masquerades as a bookstore, end quote. This worldview is the reason Whitman allowed artists, 
writers, poets, and wayward travelers to live for short periods at the store and sharing communal meals for more than six decades, with the only requirement being that they worked around the store. What you learn as you read more about Whitman, though, is although he declared himself a Marxist, what he really was, was a bookman, all the way to his core. The lengths to which he goes to keep his beloved bookstore afloat are a testament to his love of books. He was single-minded in a way that few are these days, and the book faithfully shows both the good and bad side of the vagabond yet stationary life of both Whitman and his employee guests. He summed up his philosophy about books and book selling this way. The book business is the business of life. Although Whitman's daughter Sylvia continues to run the store to this day, Jeremy Mercer has given us what is the final extended look at both George Whitman and Shakespeare and Company during Whitman's lifetime. In its own small way, Time Was Soft There is a link in a chain extending back to Sylvia Beach's memoir Shakespeare and Company and Hemingway's Immovable Feast. For lovers of books and bookstores, it's a must read. Our third book today is Sixpence House, Lost in the Town of Books by Paul Collins. I'll tell you at the outset, this one may be the most difficult of the four to locate, even in your library, but it's worth tracking it down. It's another memoir that tells the story of Collins' time living in a book lover's dream, the Welsh town of Hay-on-Wye. With only 1,500 residents and 40 bookstores, it is truly a bibliophile's nirvana, especially if you love old books. Collins and his wife relocated there from San Francisco with their young son in the hope of finding a more idyllic life, and their attempts to purchase a house in the town while having nothing to do with books is as hilarious for us as it was frustrating for them. The centerpiece of the town and the place that book lovers will most want to visit someday is Hay Castle, a centuries-old castle now converted into a rambling bookstore and once owned by Richard Booth, the self-proclaimed king of Hay. After meeting Booth, Colin spent a brief period attempting, with limited resources, to organize the American literature section at the castle. The remainder of Colin's time is divided between revising his first book, wandering through the town's myriad of secondhand bookshops, and trying to navigate English real estate laws that would drive most Americans mad. Sixpence House is an entertaining read that will have book lovers planning their next vacation around the Hay Festival, which happens annually, hoping to find a rare gem of a book in the mountainous stacks of Hay Castle. But make your reservations early. The event that former President Bill Clinton called the Woodstock of the Mind is Brenton's little secret no longer, thanks in large part to Sixpence House. That's the first three books, and I hope they've piqued your interest. When we come back, I'll discuss the one that I love the most, and that is actually in my top 10, I know I'm not supposed to do a top 10 list, my top 10 list of books all time.
this year marks the 49th anniversary of the publication of what may be the most unlikely New York Times bestseller ever, Helene Hamp's classic, 84 Charing Cross Road. It's not even a book in the conventional sense, but rather a collection of letters exchanged by Miss Hamp and London bookseller Frank Dole and other staff members between 1949 and 1969. The fact that it's such a slim volume, only 96 pages, makes its runaway success in 1970 even more amazing. But 84 Charing Cross Road is a perfect example of why you can't judge a book by its cover, by its length, or by the unorthodox nature of its content. Ultimately, what makes the book work is what makes any book work, whether fiction or nonfiction the relationships between the characters. And for readers today, the way these relationships develop are not simply interesting in themselves, but also because of the manner in which they happen. In an instant gratification Twitter and Facebook world, the often leisurely pace of the letters between Helene and Frank are a window into an era that we'll sadly never see again. Their correspondence begins in 1949 as Helene is searching for clean copies of used books she's unable to find near her home in New York. This alone will seem strange to readers accustomed to using the internet to find any book ever published, but before the advent of eBay and Amazon, books that went out of print could only be found through used and antiquarian booksellers, who themselves had to conduct exhaustive and time-consuming searches. She writes to London booksellers Marks & Company, requesting certain titles she cannot locate, and thus begins the 20 years of correspondence that make up the book. It probably says something about us as a country, even then, that living in New York City, she still had to write to London to find these books. But that's another story. Helene Hamp was a prolific writer during her life, but her letters in 84 Charing Cross Road prove that she may have missed her true calling as a stand-up comic. Many of her letters are just hilarious, made more so when juxtaposed with Frank's typically proper and reserved English responses. Their exchange over a mix-up regarding a Latin New Testament is priceless, especially given that Hamp was Jewish. The books she orders are a veritable masterclass in literature, ranging from Chaucer to Virginia Woolf to Jane Austen. Say what you will about the Rory Gilmore Book Club, but a lover of books could do far worse than simply reading all the titles mentioned in Helene and Frank's correspondence. But had this just been an exchange of book orders and invoices, it wouldn't have grabbed the public's attention in such a way that the book is still loved 50 years later, as well as having been adapted into both a play and a film. Helene goes beyond being a simple customer becoming involved in the lives of the store staff, celebrating their joys, mourning their losses, and caring for their physical needs in a very real way. Most Americans today are not aware of this, but England after the end of World War II was subject to severe rationing that lasted for many years. Upon learning that her new friends couldn't get things like meat or real eggs, she began sending regular food parcels to them, especially at holidays. One such parcel caused her to send a panicked follow-up letter. She had sent a ham before realizing that the owners of the shop were Jewish 
and offered to, quote, rush over a tongue, end quote. The staff, six in all, respond by sending her photos of their families, first edition books, and teaching her how to make Yorkshire pudding. Throughout this two-decade friendship, she planned to travel to London to meet everyone in person, yet seemed to always be put off by some unexpected event. 84 Charing Cross Road is at its core more than just a book about books. It's a book about lovers of books. And at the same time, it's one of the funniest and most touching books you'll ever read. Those who've read the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, a novel also comprised of only letters between the characters, will quickly see how much that bestseller owes 84 Charing Cross Road for its very existence. I'm thankful that their correspondence came at a time when people both wrote and kept letters. Such a book would likely never have been possible in the era of email, and that would have been a very great loss. I should also warn you to make sure you have time set aside once you begin reading 84 Charing Cross Road, because you'll read it in one sitting. I did the first time, and every time I've read it since, which is almost yearly. In fact, it's probably time for me to read it again. So there you have it. The Yellow Lighted Bookshop. Time was soft there. Sixpence House. And 84 Charing Cross Road. Four books about books that every book lover should have on their shelves. Keep on reading. listening to today's episode of Bookish. I hope you found it both informative and entertaining. If you'd like to keep episodes like this coming, I'd also like you to consider supporting us by clicking the support this podcast link on the anchor site. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can keep episodes like this coming and also help us get to the point where we're completely ad-free. Thanks again.